Chapter Two of the Woman in the Alcove. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Woman in the Alcove by Anna Catherine Green. Chapter Two The Gloves. I must have remained insensible for many minutes, for when I returned to full consciousness, the supper-room was empty, and the two hundred guests I had left seated at table were gathered in agitated groups about the hall. This was what I first noted. Not till afterward did I realize my own situation. I was lying on a couch in a remote corner of this same hall, and beside me, but not looking at me, stood my lover, Mr. Durand. How he came to know my state and find me in the general disturbance, I did not stop to inquire. It was enough for me, at that moment, to look up and see him so near. Indeed, the relief was so great, the sense of his protection so comforting, that I involuntarily stretched out my hand in gratitude toward him, but, fearing to attract his attention, slipped to the floor and took my stand at his side. This roused him, and he gave me a look, which steadied me. In spite of the thrill of surprise with which I recognized his extreme pallor, and a certain peculiar hesitation in his manner, not at all natural to it. Meanwhile, some words uttered near us were slowly making their way into my benumbed brain. The waiter, who had raised the first alarm, was endeavoring to describe to an importunate group in advance of us what he had come upon in that murderous alcove. "'I was carrying about a tray of ices,' he was saying, "'and seeing the lady sitting there, went up. "'I had expected to find the place full of gentlemen, "'but she was all alone, and did not move "'as I picked my way over her long train. "'The next moment I had dropped ices tree and all. "'I had come face to face with her "'and seen that she was dead. "'She had been stabbed and robbed.' There was no diamond on her breast, but there was blood. A hubbub of disordered sentences, seasoned with horrified cries, followed this simple description. Then a general movement took place in the direction of the alcove, during which Mr. Durant stooped to my ear and whispered, "'We must get out of this. You are not strong enough to stand such excitement. Don't you think we can escape by the window over there?' "'What? Without wraps in such a snowstorm?' I protested. Besides, Uncle will be looking for me. He came with me, you know. An expression of annoyance, or was it perplexity, crossed Mr. Durant's face, and he made a movement as if to leave me. I must go, he began, but stopped at my glance of surprise and assumed a different air, one which became him very much better. Pardon me, dear. I will take you to your uncle. This... This dreadful tragedy, interrupting so gay a scene, has quite upset me. I was always sensitive to the sight, the smell, even to the very mention of the word blood. So was I, but not to the point of cowardice. But then I had not just come from an interview with the murdered woman. Her glances, her smiles, the lift of her eyebrows, were not fresh memories to me. Some consideration was certainly due him, for the shock he must be laboring under. Yet I did not know how to keep back the vital question. Who did it? 
you must have heard someone say. I have heard nothing, was his somewhat fierce rejoinder. Then, as I made a move, What, do you not wish to follow the crowd there? I wish to find my uncle, and he is in that crowd. Mr. Durant said nothing further, and together we passed down the hall. A strange mood pervaded my mind. Instead of wishing to fly a scene which under ordinary conditions would have filled me with utter repugnance, I felt a desire to see and hear everything. Not from curiosity, such as moved most of the people about me, but because of some strong instinctive feeling I could not understand, as if it were my heart which had been struck, and my fate which was trembling in the balance. We were consequently among the first to hear such further details as were allowed to circulate among the now well-nigh frenzied guests. No one knew the perpetrator of the deed, nor did there appear to be any direct evidence calculated to fix its identity. Indeed, the sudden death of this beautiful woman in the midst of a festivity might have been looked upon as a suicide if the jewel had not been missing from her breast, and the instrument of death removed from the wound. So far, the casual search which had been instituted had failed to produce this weapon, but the police would be here soon, and then something would be done. As to the means of entrance employed by the assassin, there seemed to be but one opinion. The alcove contained a window opening upon his small balcony. By this he had doubtless entered and escaped. The long plush curtains which, during the early part of the evening, had remained looked back on either side of the casement, were found at the moment of the crime's discovery closely drawn together. Certainly a suspicious circumstance. However, the question was one easily settled. If anyone had approached by the balcony, there would be marks in the snow to show it. Mr. Ramsdell had gone out to sea. He would be coming back soon. "'Do you think this is a probable explanation of the crime?' I demanded of Mr. Durand at this juncture. "'If I remember rightly, this window overlooks the carriage drive. "'It must, therefore, be within plain sight of the door through which some three hundred guests have passed to-night. "'How could anyone climb to such a height, lift the window, and step in without being seen?' "'You forget the awning,' he spoke quickly and with unexpected vivacity. The awning runs up very near this window, and quite shuts it off from the sight of arriving guests. The drivers of departing carriages could see it if they chanced to glance back, but their eyes are usually on their horses in such a crowd. The probabilities are against any of them having looked up. His brow had cleared. A weight seemed removed from his mind. When I went into the alcove to see Mrs. Fairbrother, she was sitting in a chair near this window, looking out. I remember the effect of her splendor against the snow sifting down in a steady stream behind her. The pink velvet, the soft green of the curtains on either side, her brilliance, and the snow for her background. Yes, the murderer came in that way. Her figure would be plain to anyone outside. And if she moved, and the diamond shone, don't you see what a probable theory it is? There must be ways by which a desperate man might reach that balcony. I believe... How eager he was, and with what a look he turned, when the word came filtering through the crowd that, 
though footsteps had been found in the snow pointing directly towards the balcony, there was none on the balcony itself, proving, as anyone could see, that the attack had not come from without, since no one could enter the alcove by the window without stepping on the balcony. "'Mr. Durand has suspicions of his own,' I explained determinedly to myself. "'He met someone going in as he stepped out. "'Shall I ask him to name this person?' "'No, I did not have the courage. "'Not while his face wore so stern a look "'and was so resolutely turned away. "'The next excitement was a request from Mr. Ramsdell "'for us all to go into the drawing-room.' This led to various cries from hysterical lips, such as, "'We're going to be searched. He believes the thief and murderer to be still in the house. Do you see the diamond on me? Why don't they confine their suspicions to the favored few who are admitted to the alcove?' "'They will,' remarked someone close to my ear. But quickly as I turned, I could not guess from whom the comment came. Possibly from a much-beflowered, bejeweled elderly dame, whose eyes were fixed on Mr. Durand's averted face. If so, she received a defiant look from mine, which I do not believe she forgot in hurry. Alas, it was not the only curious, I might say, searching glance I surprised directed against him as we made our way to where I could see my uncle struggling to reach us from a short side hall. The whispers seemed to have gone about that Mr. Durand had been the last one to converse with Mrs. Fairbrother prior to the tragedy. In time I had the satisfaction of joining my uncle. He betrayed great relief at the sight of me, and, encouraged by his kindly smile, I introduced Mr. Durand. My conscious air must have produced its impression, for he turned a startled and inquiring look upon my companion, then took me resolutely on his own arm, saying, There is likely to be some unpleasantness ahead for all of us. I do not think the police will allow anyone to go till that diamond has been looked for. This is a very serious matter, dear. So many think the murderer was one of the guests. I think so, too, said I. But why I thought so, or why I should say so with such vehemence, I do not even know. My uncle looked surprised. You had better not advance any opinions, he advised. A lady like yourself should have none on a subject so gruesome. I shall never cease regretting bringing you here tonight. I shall seize on the first opportunity to take you home. At present, we are supposed to await the action of our host. He cannot keep all these people here long, I ventured. No, most of us will be relieved soon. Had you not better get your wraps, so as to be ready to go as soon as he gives the word? I should prefer to have a peep at the people in the drawing-room first, was my perverse reply. I don't know why I want to see them, but I do. And, uncle, I might as well tell you now that I engaged myself to Mr. Durand this evening, the gentleman with me when you first came up. You have engaged yourself? To, to this man? To marry him, do you mean? I nodded, with a sly look behind to see if Mr. Durand were near enough to hear. He was not, and I allowed my enthusiasm to escape in a few quick words. He has chosen me, I said, the plainest, most uninteresting person in the whole city. My uncle smiled. And I believe he loves me. At all events, 
I know that I love him.' My uncle sighed, while giving me the most affectionate of glances. "'It's a pity you should have come to this understanding tonight,' said he. "'He's an acquaintance of the murdered woman, and it's only right for you to know that you will have to leave him behind when you start for home. All who have been seen entering that alcove this evening will necessarily be detained here till the coroner arrives.' My uncle and I strolled toward the drawing-room, and as we did so, we passed the library. It held but one occupant, the Englishman. He was seated before a table, and his appearance was such as precluded any attempt at intrusion, even if one had been so disposed. There was a fixity in his gaze, and a frown on his powerful forehead, which bespoke a mind greatly agitated. It was not for me to read that mind much as it interested me, and I passed on, chatting, as if I had not the least desire to stop. I cannot say how much time elapsed before my uncle touched me on the arm with the remark. The police are here in full force. I saw a detective in plain clothes looking here a minute ago. He seemed to have his eye on you. There he is again. What can he want? No, don't turn. He's gone away now. Frightened, as I had never been in all my life, I managed to keep my head up and maintain an indifferent aspect. What, as my uncle said, could a detective want of me? I had nothing to do with the crime. Not in the remotest way could I be said to be connected with it. Why, then, had I caught the attention of the police? Looking about, I sought Mr. Durand. He had left me on my uncle's coming up, but had remained, as I supposed, within sight. But at this moment he was nowhere to be seen. Was I afraid on his account? Impossible, yet happily just then the word was passed about that the police had given orders that, with the exception of such as had been requested to remain to answer questions, the guests generally should feel themselves at liberty to depart. The time had now come to take a stand, and I informed my uncle, to his evident chagrin, that I should not leave as long as any excuse could be found for staying. He said nothing at the time, but as the noise of departing carriages gradually lessened, and the great hall and drawing-rooms began to wear a look of desertion, he at last ventured on this gentle protest. You have more pluck, Rita, than I suppose. Do you think it wise to stay on here? Will not people imagine that you had been requested to do so? Look at those waiters hanging about in the different doorways. Run up and put on your wraps. Monsieur Durand will come to the house fast enough as soon as he is released. I give you leave to sit up for him, if you will. Only let us leave this place before that impertinent little man dares to come around again, he artfully added. But I stood firm, though somewhat moved by his final suggestion, and being a small tyrant in my way, at least with him, I carried my point. Suddenly my anxiety became poignant. A party of men, among whom I saw Mr. Durand, appeared at the end of the hall, led by a very small but self-important personage, whom my uncles immediately pointed out, as the detective who had twice come to the door near which I stood. As this man looked up and saw me still there, a look of relief crossed his face, 
and after a word or two with another stranger of seeming authority, he detached himself from the group he had ushered upon the scene, and approaching me, respectfully enough, said with a deprecatory glance at my uncle, whose frown he doubtless understood, "'Miss Van Arstel, I believe?' I nodded, too choked to speak. "'I am sorry, madam, if you are expecting to go. Inspector Dalzell has arrived and would like to speak to you. Will you step into one of these rooms? Not the library, but any other.' He will come to you as quickly as he can. I tried to carry it off bravely, and as if I saw nothing in this summons which was unique or alarming. But I succeeded only in dividing a wavering glance between him and the group of men of which he had just formed a part. In the latter were several gentlemen whom I had noted in Mrs. Fairbrother's train early in the evening, and a few strangers, two of them were officials. Sir Duran was with the former, and his expression did not encourage me. "'The affair is very serious,' commented the detective on leaving me. "'That's our excuse for any trouble we may be putting you to.' I clutched my uncle's arm. "'Where shall we go?' I asked. "'The drawing-room is too large. In this hall, my eyes are forever traveling in the direction of the alcove. Don't you know some little room?' Oh, what, what can he want of me? Nothing serious, nothing important, blustered my good uncle. Some triviality such as you can answer in a moment. A little room? Yes, I know one. There, under the stairs. Come, I will find the door for you. Why did we ever come to this wretched ball? I had no answer for this. Why, indeed? My uncle, who is a very patient man, guided me to the place he had picked out, without adding a word to the ejaculation in which he had just allowed his impatience to expand itself. But once seated within and out of the range of peering eyes and listening ears, he allowed a sigh to escape him, which expressed the fullness of his agitation. My dear, he began and stopped. I feel here again he came to a pause that you should know what i managed to ask that i do not like mr durand and that others do not like him is it because of something you knew about him before tonight he made no answer or because he was seen like many other gentlemen talking with that woman some time before a long time before she was attacked for a diamond and murdered. Pardon me, my dear. He was the last one seen talking to her. Someone may yet be found who went in after he came out, but as yet he is considered the last. Mr. Ramsdell himself told me so. It makes no difference, I exclaimed, in all the heat of my long-suppressed agitation. I am willing to stake my life on his integrity and honor. No man could talk to me as he did early this evening, with any vile intentions at heart. He was interested, no doubt, like many others, in one who has the name of being a captivating woman, but— I paused in sudden alarm. A look had crossed my uncle's face, which assured me that we were no longer alone. Who could have entered so silently? In some trepidation I turned to see. A gentleman was standing in the doorway who smiled as I met his eye. "'Is this Miss Van Arstel?' he asked. 
Instantly my courage, which had threatened to leave me, returned, and I smiled. "'I am,' said I. "'Are you the inspector?' "'Inspector Dalsell,' he explained with a bow, which included my uncle. Then he closed the door. "'I hope I have not frightened you,' he went on, approaching me with a gentlemanly air. "'A little matter has come up concerning which I mean to be perfectly frank with you. "'It may prove to be of trivial importance. "'If so, you will pardon my disturbing you. "'Mr. Durand, you know him?' "'I am engaged to him,' I declared before Uncle could raise his hand. "'You are engaged to him. "'Well, that makes it difficult, "'and yet, in some respects, easier for me to ask a certain question.' It must have made it more difficult than easy, for he did not proceed to put this question immediately, but went on. You know that Mr. Durand visited Mrs. Fairbrother in the alcove a little while before her death. I have been told so. He was seen to go in, but I have not yet found anyone who saw him come out. Consequently, we have been unable to fix the exact minute when he did so. "'What is the matter, Miss Van Arstel? "'You want to say something?' "'No, no,' I protested, reconsidering my first impulse. "'Then, as I met his look—he can probably tell you that himself. "'I'm sure he would not hesitate.' "'We shall ask him later,' was the inspector's response. "'Meanwhile, are you ready to assure me that since that time "'he has not entrusted you with a little article to keep? "'No, no, I do not mean the diamond,' he broke in, in very evident dismay, as I fell back from him in irrepressible indignation and alarm. "'The diamond? Well, we shall look for that later. "'It is another article we are in search of now, "'one which Mr. Durand might very well have taken in his hand "'without realizing just what he was doing. "'As it is important for us to find this article,' and as it is one he might very naturally have passed over to you when he found himself in the hall with it in his hand i have ventured to ask you if this surmise is correct it is not i retorted fiercely glad that i could speak from my very heart he has given me nothing to keep for him he would not why that peculiar look in the inspector's eye why did he reach out for a chair and seat me in it before I took up my interrupted sentence and finished it. Would not give you anything to hold which belonged to another woman? Miss Van Arsdale, you do not know men. They do many things which a young, trusting girl like yourself would hardly expect from them. Not Mr. Durant, I maintained stoutly. Perhaps not. Let us hope not. Then, with a quick change of manner, he bent toward me with a sidelong look at uncle, and pointing to my gloves, remarked, "'You wear gloves. Did you feel the need of two pairs that you carry another in that pretty bag hanging from your arm?' I started, looked down, then slowly drew up into my hand the bag he had mentioned. The white finger of a glove was protruding from the top. Anyone could see it. Many probably had. What did it mean?' I had brought no extra pair with me. This is not mine, I began, faltering into silence 
as I perceived my uncle turn and walk a step or two away. The article we are looking for, pursued the inspector, is a pair of long white gloves, supposed to have been worn by Mrs. Fairbrother when she entered the alcove. Do you mind showing me those, a finger of which I see? I dropped the bag into his hand. The room and everything in it was whirling around me. But when I noticed what trouble it was to his clumsy fingers to open it, my senses returned, and, reaching for the bag, I pulled it open and snatched out the gloves. They had been hastily rolled up, and some of the fingers were showing. "'Let me have them, he said. With quaking heart and shaking fingers, I handed over the gloves. Mrs. Fairbrother's hand was not a small one, he observed as he slowly unrolled them. Yours is. We can soon tell, but that sentence was never finished. As the gloves fell open in his grasp, he uttered a sudden, sharp ejaculation, and I a smothered shriek. An object of superlative brilliancy had rolled out from them. The diamond, the gem which man said, was worth a king's ransom, and which we all knew had just cost a life. End of chapter 2